0: Hi, it's Alan Robson here. Thank you so much for continuing to press a button in my direction. Tonight, a grisly tale or two around Halloween, of course. It's that time when it's thought that ghosts and spirits are maybe at their most lonely. For at midnight, when we enter All Saints Day, where prayers are offered to the dead who are held in purgatory, In medieval days, they fused the pagan festival of Samhain with that of the Christian hallows, basically because the Christian church didn't have anybody going there, so thought if they copied some of the things that the pagans did, maybe they'd get an audience in their church. And it's from the time of medieval days that I've got something for you tonight. We will attempt something that was commonly done in the 12th century. And if you wish, we will help spirits pass across from purgatory into that next phase. Be it heaven, or if they were evil, we'll send them somewhere warmer, if you believe that. Personally, I believe we just go on to a new life. We're reborn. I have a rhyme that's supposed to give ordinary people a glimpse of those spirits. Now back in days of old this ceremony was performed in front of a huge open fire whilst everyone uh, in the castle or in the house held hands. But we'll add another dimension to it which makes it far more modern and possibly far more frightening. As you know, we've investigated many a poltergeist. We've exorcised many a spirit, particularly that young couple that came to the radio station who were so terrified that every night at six o'clock they would sleep in their car in a car park rather than dare risk staying in their home to face what was happening to them. It seems the best chance we have of seeing spirit is from the cones at the side of our eyes. We rarely see spirit clearly face on. It's out of the sides of your eyes we must particularly pay attention to. So, at a time when the spirits are judged and moved out of purgatory, for at that second, if you're brave enough to try it, you may be able to see these souls passing over. Some may have been in purgatory only a few months. Others may have been there. For hundreds of years. Wherever you are, make sure all of the lights are out except one candle. One single candle in a room. Now, because these spirits will only be visible at the side of you or behind you, position the candle right in front of a mirror. The bigger, the better. Now, remember, all of the lights are out, all of the electrical apparatus off. For those of our ghost hunters You are out and about, if you pull your car over, use your rear-view mirror, pointed inwards. The candle must be between you and the mirror. If there's a number of you in the same room, try and use different mirrors when possible. And this rhyme is supposedly where the idea came from for the movie Candyman. However, this does not allow spirits to pass through into your home but you should be able to see them clearly. The rhyme must be voiced by the person who wishes to see. If your heart's not pure, you won't see. If your intentions are not good, you will not see. It was said it helps speed the dead towards their fate, whatever that is to be and you could well see a split-second glimpse of people from way back in history. Anyone who has passed over can be briefly spotted. A philosopher called Dianton, who worked for Eleanor of Aquitaine, wife of one of the kings, said, This is the purest proof of God's many mansions, and for those who worry about family who have died, It is the most glorious of comforts, knowing that they live on elsewhere. So a glimpse of fleeting souls. The candle must be the only light, and it has to be a naked flame. Between you and the looking-glass, the bigger the mirror, the better. Now I'm going to read the rhyme, and you will repeat every single line. Now, while you are repeating the rhyme, keep your eyes closed. Open it when you say the phrase, Blessings be. Okay? So open your eyes when you hear the phrase, Blessings be. So while you are reciting this, make sure you keep your eyes firmly closed, tightly closed so you can't even see the light of the candle, tightly closed. And if you do this, there's a good chance the mirror will show you its secrets. Don't turn around no matter what you see, if you turn around it will disappear. You will only see this in the reflection of your mirror. Open your minds and concentrate for this while. Do not break a huge chain that we're creating right across the world. So take your position. Switch all of your lights off. Make sure your candle is lit. Sit facing the looking glass. Close your eyes tightly, so tightly you can't even see the flicker of that candle. And good hunting to you. Now repeat everything that I say. In the stillness of our twilight... We seek to help those on their way Give us a glimpse, almighty, Of the travelling ones this day As they go forth uh, uttering We see the shadows stirred With souls of man and woman We hear their whispering word, we feel their gentle airy touch, the breeze they leave behind. We hear the cries of their uncertainties as they gather with their kind. Protect us now as we guide them to heaven or fiery rocks. Let them swim in your glory through solstice to equinox. Blessings be, now open your eyes. hope you were fortunate and saw something whether you did or whether you didn't many of you will have picked up a huge pumpkin or as I did as a child a small turnip and you transported into a the face of some demon a bizarre creature a lantern creature and the church says well this was used to scare evil spirits from your home Well, it was nothing to do with the church. And was it that? Well, there's mixed versions depending on who you talk to. Personally, uh, I believe it was when they were celebrating, they were partying and they were simply decorating their homes, the church would have it as something demonic, when in truth it was just playing and having fun. Pretty much every single thing to do with Halloween into Bonfire Night was a week-long celebration, encompassing the 31st and going right the way across to the 5th. And why did people burn the guy? Well, it wasn't Guy Fawkes. It was a thing called guising. You would place the bad you The you that hasn't achieved enough, the you that hasn't been kind enough to their friends and family, the you that you want rid of, the bad you, you burn on a fire. And in the new year, you begin again with all of your bad traits burned away. That was originally the idea. But those lanterns that I mentioned before, a tradition all over the world around Halloween, and it began. At this time of year, so in, the festival of wisdom, of carving turnips or pumpkins, it goes back not 700 years, closer to 7,000 years. It marks the beginning of the Celtic year by welcoming home family ghosts and spirit to the place they love to be, your home, your family's homes. The foods they enjoyed would be prepared and shared, whilst one portion would always be set aside for the dear departed. This custom is still very much a way of life in Mexico, France and Spain, when they have their famous Day of the Dead, as seen in one of the James Bond films. It's a major tradition that the day after Halloween, that the church called All Saints Day, everybody else called it the Day of the Dead, they have it as a big public holiday, even in places like France. In Britain, people would leave garlic on the sill of a west-facing window to summon their ancestors to the house. In times gone by, cattle would be brought from the hills and slaughtered for the window. One would be sacrificed and used as an early barbecue so that everybody gathered to pay tribute to their family who had passed away. was a very superstitious time and there was a massive fear of the unknown. Bonfires were lit, again the church claims, to protect their towns and villages from evil spirits. Others say, well how else do you expect me to cook half a cow unless I build a bonfire? Over this time, The Guy Fawkes attempt to blow up the English Parliament came at a good time for the church because they were looking for another ritual to be stolen from the pagans. And they made guising Guy Fawkes and it never was. On Halloween we symbolise that fire as a single candle. Placed by a window to demonstrate our wish that spirit would enter our homes, they would come and make contact. Those who are frightened would carve a horrible face into the side of a pumpkin or a turnip, and then by placing a small candle inside, they would illuminate this horrid grin. The lantern would be placed outside a front door, and if your family's spirit saw that, they would know you were scared of spirit and they wouldn't come and pay you a visit. They would merely watch you from afar. However, the story of jack is an interesting one. He died 2,000 years before Christ. Some say Jack was a legendary figure who escaped from hell, but found himself trapped in limbo, forced to carry red-hot coals for all eternity. That's what the church said so you can move swiftly past that. Northern European pagans instead tell of a man called Jack who came from the light to show the people a better way. Now, from the light means he died but he'd come back from heading towards the light. This man was capable of miracles. Now you've got to remember This is 2,000 years before Christ, but this Jack was capable of miracles. His famous ones were turning water into wine, feeding thousands of people who followed to hear him speak, he cured the lame and diseased, he raised the dead back to life. He appears all over Europe as Jack, Jacques or Julien in pagan histories in many many countries yet as soon as the Christian teaching came in they tried to get rid of Jack Jack and Julienne because they were just a little too close to their own Messiah they claim there's only been one in fact there's been hundreds interesting to note that Jack was executed by a king who had him nailed to a tree this is commonplace to what christians did to pagans because if you heard a pagan any pain you give them comes back to you tenfold so they would nail a pagan to a wooden tree and allow the creatures of nature to come out and feed on them pinning it's called and it's well known in all witch circles jesus christ according to the church was also pinned nailed to a cross for what society called his pagan activities. Now Jack, the great pagan from over 4,000 years ago, is forgotten, all except his Jack of Lantern, jack o Jack-lantern, jack many a name. But if you have a turnip or a pumpkin that you've hollowed out, but the surface is not punctured, I can show you an ancient way of telling your future. With a knife or a sharp object, you puncture one side of the vegetable with two holes for the eyes, one small hole for the nose, and four holes at least an inch apart to form a wide grinning mouth. Place a candle, ideally orange, white or cream, into the vegetable and light it. Take with you a pad and paper and write down your observations. You place a small candle inside and leave the top on so that the burning smoke will have to escape through the holes that you have made. Now you must look through each hole in turn, beginning with the mouth and leading up to the eyes. You look into each of the holes with the ancient rhyme of jack Jack o lantern burning bright, let me pass through time this night. Seeing not a future set, but possibilities that may yet. Be seized by me as paths unfold. Jack, guide me to my fate untold. Then you close your eyes, tight, open them, blink, and then write down the first image that comes clear in your mind's eye. You look in each hole immediately after opening your eyes, and tell me what image, not what you're seeing, what comes into your mind's eye. And you continue to write each vision down, then you spread them across your year, matching them to things that you maybe already have planned. This way, you can get an idea of what the year has in store for you. Now for those of you that create a pumpkin or a turnip, anything should then cook or at least eat some of it so that you're absorbing the magical properties of this rite. You leave the candle to burn out. If you extinguish it, the good fortune from the year ahead may not occur. The first hole symbolises your career and working life. Stare into the first hole, write down the first thing that comes to your mind about your job and what you need to do to make it better. What did you see in your mind's eye while staring into the flames? The second hole symbolises your parents. Sometimes people see death, illness or accidents. Prepare to be shocked or surprised. Those of you who are gifted will have those skills shown to you here. The third hole represents your children stare into the light, see their future and all you will need to do. Do not hesitate to write notes down so that later you can remember what happened in its entirety. The fourth and final hole in the mouth represents animals and birds you may own. Look into the shadowy light, write down the things you see, the things that enter your mind. And then you close your eyes tight again before moving to the next hole. The next hole made for the nose, representing good or bad fortune. Stare in and see what life has in store for you. Should the candle go out at this point, you may not have long left to live. Death would certainly visit your home or those around you soon. This is not something to take lightly. The first eye hole symbolises your health and fitness, problems and solutions. Will things be better or worse this year? This is not an exact science, but surprisingly gives you fairly accurate ideas. You'll start to feel what will happen, as well as see it. Then you clench your eyes closed again. Open them, blink, then what do you see? Finally, the second eye hole represents love and relationships, before looking into that hole, fill your mind with those you love and those who love you and see what the future has in store for all. If you have any kind of gift at all, this task will not only show it to you, but prove it to you, And all thanks to the late and often forgotten jack-o'-lantern. Okay, we've given you a couple of interesting ceremonies that you may wish to take your time to perform because you can listen to this over and over again if it benefits you, if it helps you. But around Halloween, sometimes tradition has got people into trouble and caused a lot more than you would ever imagine. Now, as you've been hearing, lighting huge bonfires on hills and partying ...and sacrificing one of your cattle or a goat or a sheep... ...or whatever you could afford to sacrifice. Not human beings, as so many people tell you. The Pagans had partying off path. They knew exactly how to have a really good time. And inadvertently it led... ...to Yorkshire's rebel last stand... ...against the Roman army. Now back then... Everybody in Britain, pretty much, was a pagan. Nobody believed in Christianity at all. And even when you got into Roman times, there were very, very few Christians kicking around and uh, 94, 95% of the population, other than Romans, of course, would be pagan. Now, if you visit the Valley of Stanach St. John, you enter an area where the brave Yorkshire folk decided they would fight back against the massive onslaught of a very professional Roman army. There stands a 700-acre site known as Stannic Iron Age Hill Fort. Over time, they've uncovered incredible artefacts here, ranging from Iron Age swords, clothes, jewellery, coins, a beautiful mask of a horse and a human skull that had been badly damaged by axes. They've also discovered that as a hill site, it's probably been a fort over and over and over again, used by different people from different, different times, maybe going back to prehistory. And back then, your ordinary Yorkshire folk had watched the Romans march through their country. They had paid attention to their range of techniques of warfare. During that time, if they captured a Roman, they would hang him over the front gate of the fort as a warning to others. Many believe that this was the major stronghold of the first century king of the Brigantes, Venutius. Now, Venutius was married to a very fickle woman, Cartamandua, who would later run off with her husband's armor-bearer, slave. She then declared that her husband, the slave, the armor-bearer, was the tribal king. So her husband, no divorces back then, made war against her. And by this time, King Caractacus had been captured by the Romans and paraded as a heathen through the streets of Rome. Yet his demeanor and his fine way of talking actually won the Romans over. They found it uh, in his favour and pardoned him, and he was allowed to live out the rest of his life as a Roman citizen. So this left Venutius to face the full might of the Roman Empire. Rome protected his ex-wife, who had declared her peace with Roman rule. So Venutius first attacked her, forcing her out of this amazing hill fort. And he began a revolt that ended in defeat to Caesius Nasica. Some months later, he'd regrouped. He'd gathered even more men, and around 69 AD, he forced the Romans to retreat. They took his problem, Cartamandua, with them, and during their escape... Velocatus, her new husband and ex-slave armour-bearer, had been left behind by the Romans who certainly didn't want any example of a slave becoming a ruler. Some say he was left with a sack of gold coin so he could fend for himself, but Venutius caught him, took the coin, and with his money, Venutius essentially bought off Velocatus's few straggling army members and they all instantly joined Venutius now this left his wife's lover prisoner to Venutius so the first thing he did in front of an open flame for it was getting near so in Velocatus had his penis and testicles cut off and fed to the dogs whilst he was tied to a tree. The following morning the camp woke up to the screaming of the most terrible kind. The man who had stolen his wife had fallen to the ground and a number of wild dogs were tearing him apart, eating him alive, his hands still tied to the tree, his face now at floor level and two dogs chewing at his face, ripping off cheeks, biting into eyebrows, almost cracking the bone of his skull. Venulius had watched the Romans march, using shields to protect them from arrows. The only weakness they had was from below. So beneath the hillfort, they placed channels of pitch and pine oil. And once the Romans got within the range of their bowmen, the Brigantes... That's the tribe Fired flaming arrows into the ground Literally igniting the earth beneath their feet As they tried to run They were no longer covered by their shields So they were all but massacred By the valiant Yorkshire folk Roman leader Tacitus Told Vespasian That because of Venutius He would have to start again And recapture All of Yorkshire They would never stop fighting unless they were wiped out, and even decades later there were tales of immense bravery against ridiculous odds. Now, some say that Venutius was lost in the sands of time, yet in the pagan chronicles there is a story about how he fought a final battle at the hill fort. A new army of Romans had come to Britain with one job given by their Emperor. Destroy and conquer Yorkshire. Yorkshire, of course, wasn't called Yorkshire at the time, but it was exactly that area, pretty much. Now, they found a little bit of resistance to them. People would keep attacking their legion, firing an arrow to kill uh, one of their leaders. Or picking of somebody that's hanging around at the back. But no major opposition. Because they couldn't find them. They couldn't find any hint of enemy army. Until the night of soin. 31st of October into what the Christians would use as All Saints Day. Or the Day of the Dead if you prefer. It became a real day of the dead because when Venudius lit half a dozen huge bonfires around the hill fort animals had been sacrificed it was time to party well the Romans saw that by this time in history Venutius had persuaded another pagan tribe to join with the Briganti the Carvetii joined forces they were going to fight the Romans together they'd already been impressed with how Venutius had led the Brigantes and forced the Romans back and they wanted to force them back further as Rome were very busy defending their land from the Scottish the one place they didn't want trouble is Yorkshire catching a large number of Roman soldiers in between two rebel forces so four Roman legions had travelled from Rome to destroy and totally wipe out all resistance. They were told not to leave a single animal standing. So in they charged along the valley looking up at the bonfire celebrating the partying hillfort. Maybe the people at the hill fort saw the lights of this army coming near and thought nothing of it thinking it was only more party goers lit up and looking forward to join in their tremendous celebration at the end of their working year. So they charged along that valley heading up to Stanach St John and the huge fortification bristling with two tribes worth of rebels. On realising that it wasn't just uh, a bunch of party goers when they realised that they were the Roman army there. They managed to beat back the first few waves. Once again, the ground set aflame, forcing them back. Venutius had already prepared the ground leading up to the fort. Then Venudius decided to order his men down from the hill fort to surround them and cutting down any who had survived the fire. The Brigandi chieftain believed a massive victory had been won until, once they were all out of the fort, another soldier signalled and two more full legions had got behind them. One entered the fort and it was a massacre. All of the families, all of their wild stock, slaughtered too. Every domestic and farm animal put to the sword. They burned the bodies at midnight. As the Roman officer said, we burn them at midnight so all can see and smell the end of the Brigantes. It was a major defeat. Venutius dead and all of his generals too. But these brave tribes never stopped their rebellion against the Roman overlords. And they would centuries later, take their lands back. Now this site is said to be an uncomfortable one to spend time at. If you visit it, you often feel terror in your stomach. The anxiety and blind fear some have witnessed hordes of dark shapes surrounding you. This is a place very much not for the faint-handed, and some say Had the pagans not celebrated their faith in the way that they did, the Romans may have walked past that hill without any idea their enemy were atop of it. And again, something else happened around Halloween, because in this case, more proof that the Day of the Dead truly has a history of death stained upon it. In this case... It's the story of Billy the Stumper. During the end of the Boer War, all the way to the First World War, Bellingham Workhouse doubled as a hospital. Those that were badly wounded, especially those requiring amputations, came to use almost half of the building. Up to 27 military inmates at a time. They'd be patched up, shipped out, or buried, only for the next poor souls to arrive with limbs missing, bullet wounds, shrapnel and all of the horrors of war. The quality of the medical care was better than on the front lane but was still rather dubious. Medical students with barely a year's experience were sawing off arms and legs. Even so the excellent nurses provided by the hospital at Hexham often helped many a life be saved. The majority of those patients died more often of associated infections, sepsis or pneumonia. One ultimate survivor was Billy Rutter of the Royal Engineers. He had both of his legs blown off in November 1914 and the remaining half of him returned to Blighty and eventually Bellingham's workhouse. Locals couldn't believe how well this guy did. He walked on his hands, swinging his torso to get around the building. He could go upstairs too, despite a little more effort. Everybody ignored his surname, Billy Rutter, and instead called him Billy Stumper. And would bring him gifts treat him to beers at the local two pubs back in the day he would often sit on the bar exchanging stories with the locals and he raised the spirits of all of those at the workhouse until about 1918 just around Halloween around the building they had open graves not so much for people more for Arms, legs, fingers, thumbs, ears, genitals, toes, feet, whatever had to be removed. There were a few full body graves there too. Soldiers who died were often buried in their hometowns, returned by the forces but those who had no family, the lonely. The desolate dead remained around the Bellingham workhouse. Literally hundreds of people ended their lives there. And is there any wonder that people see ghosts in that building to this day? Billy Stumper returned home to London, where he became the talk of Hammersmith, a valiant soldier who was unstoppable even when he was on two stumps on his torso, until one evening when he was making his way down to his local and a lorry reversed over him, killing him outright. And the weird thing was that the following Halloween, dozens of people say they saw the spirit of Billy Stumper swinging his torso on two long arms to get around the downstairs of the workhouse over 44 reports that he was seen across the day and the night of Halloween they say that his spirit returned to Bellingham to the old hospital and workhouse that had saved his life now anybody interested in legends of swashbuckling daring do should visit an inn the Dick Turpin, the notorious highwayman, used to use as his safe house whilst he was in the south. There was a thing called the Spaniard's Inn, Spaniard's Road, London North West 3. And it'll take you back in time to an age filled with pirates, smugglers, rogues and road bandits. Now, there's several stories about this particular establishment, including one that claims to be the only time Turpin was ever identified as a murderer. The legend begins with Turpin travelling down to London on his horse Black Bess to spend some time and some of his loot to meet one of his contacts, who had been receiving a variety of smuggled goods from ships off the northern coastline. He was staying, as he always did, at the Spaniard's Inn. He was in a downstairs kitchen actually having sex with a prostitute on the table when a group of soldiers walked in on him and started laughing. Well, it was an odd sight to meet their eyes. Not even a rogue like Turpin could complete this manoeuvre with an audience and he pulled on his trues and began shouting at the men for interrupting him so rudely the soldiers were drunk and spoiling for a fight and Turpin was in just the mood to oblige them. The girl tried to scurry back into the inn but was grabbed by one of the soldiers. ''No, don't run away my puppet. You've been paid by this jackanapes, so the least I can do is get his money's worth.'' He started fumbling with his belt buckle while holding the frightened girl tightly by the arm. Much as she screamed, the innkeeper ignored her cries. In those days, the tenants knew that it was the customers who paid the money. The girls had to look after themselves. By this time, Turpin was being punched and kicked on the kitchen floor as the sergeant had his way with a young prostitute. Turpin regained consciousness some hours later to find the girl sobbing in the corner of the kitchen. The innkeeper had tended to Turpin's cuts, but the girl had been totally ignored. Her face was battered and bruised, a trickle of blood running from the corner of her mouth down her chin, gathering into a stain on the shoulder of her dress. Miraculously, none of the drunken troops had recognised their victim as Dick Turpin, for there was a sizable reward offered that time for his capture. His ribs ached, his jaw had an annoying click each time he spoke, and his every movement caused him extreme discomfort. He peered through the gap in the door, and there, at a table in the centre of the room, sat the very soldiers, laughing and drinking. He heard them say to the serving girl, Before we leave, we'll all have you too, my girl, so be swift with our ale. Another braggart shouted, If you tarry, we'll kick the landlord to death, like we did that old peasant in your the kitchen. They thought he was dead. Now, Turpin was a wily and calculating man. He rarely bit off more than he could actually chew. Yet here was a group of seven trained soldiers who had all heard and humiliated him. He decided that he would cast caution to the wind, but would bide his time until the moment was right. The ale flowed merrily, and in the early hours of the morning the soldiers were paralytic, hardly able to walk when they left that Spaniard's inn. "'The sergeant was dragging a plump lady from the inn, shouting, "'I promised you a serving, and that's what you'll get.' "'The innkeeper was begging him to leave her alone. "'She's my wife, sergeant. "'Please, I can find you a woman if that's all you want.' "'A woman be damned!' barked the soldier. "'I'm having this fat bitch, "'and if you say any more I'll run a sword through your gizzard.' "'Tears were running down the man's face "'as he watched his wife being dragged.' towards the inn's dilapidated barn, screaming and yelling as she went. This was Turpin's moment. He covered his mouth with his neckerchief, mounted black bess, and with a pistol in each hand he rode into the open. Seeing the imposing highwayman trotting towards them, the soldiers froze on the spot, too drunk to react in any sensible way. So Turpin ran into the middle of them, pistol-whipping one and cracking the skull in the way that you would open a coconut. The others began to run, stumbling and falling as they went. Turpin rode them down, seriously injuring at least another two, then galloped back to the inn. But hearing screams from the barn, he dismounted and walked inside. And there he saw the innkeeper's wife, her clothes ripped from her back, wedged in a corner, as the fat sergeant was taunting her. She had defended her honour as best she could, but was fighting a losing battle with this huge brute. Turpin shouted at the beast of a man who was partially undressed. As he turned, he saw the highwayman in his tricorn hat, cape, riding boots and mask, waving two pistols towards him. The sergeant surprisingly didn't seem unduly alarmed saying, Get you away, fellow, lest your net will be stretched before morning. Then he turned his attention back towards the terrified woman who was covering her nakedness with a dirty horse blanket. This angered Turpin even more and he stepped behind the soldier and gave him an almighty kick in the pants. This finally caused some reaction from the lusty soldier who growled like a bear and turned towards him. "'Listen, you rogue, we've stretched many a neck of thieves like you. "'I have this woman to attend to, so ride right away. "'You'll not get another warning this night. "'Who the hell is you think you are, Dick Turpin?' "'The sergeant's chin dropped when the highwayman replied. "'Yes.' "'Suddenly his ardour had cooled. "'His eyes betrayed the fear that ran through his body like iced water.' Uh, "'All right, then this woman can go. I "'Better still, we can both have her, right?' "'The sergeant tried to laugh, but it fell from his mouth "'with no great conviction. "'He began running off at the mouth. "'Look, I'm like you, uh, this very night. "'I killed a man right here in the kitchens.' "'At this, Turpin pulled his mask away from his face, "'bearing a bruised chin that was every colour of the rainbow. I ah, said, "'you're as grand a lover as you are a killer.' By this time, the innkeeper had wrapped his arm around his wife. The young prostitute stood beside them, watching the showdown. Turpin pointed at the young girl and said, "'I think you owe this girl an apology.' The sergeant spat at the ground. "'I'll not apologise for that young doxy. "'She really got what she's paid for.' Turpin was being wound up like a spring. When he robbed people on the road, he had relied on their fear yet he felt this man seemed to have little of any trepidation, almost as if the sergeant could feel that the highwayman's confidence was on the wane. He stepped towards him, saying, Turpin, I don't think you've ever killed a man, have you? The road bandit froze, for he had not. He'd threaded it regularly, but the nearest he'd come to wounding was a tally man in the arm from over 40 yards. Yet here he was, eye to eye with a man who was a trained killer. Suddenly, the balance of power seems to be shifting. The sergeant began walking towards him, talking all the while. ''You're just one of these cowards who wave guns around. You don't use them. You know if you were to kill one of the king's men, your life would be over. So I'll take you back for trail and pick up a handsome reward.'' He was smiling now, gaining courage with every step. He continued his barrage at Turpin. "'Trying to wet-nurse these peasants, were you?' "'Well, they're in league with you. "'We'll have to have their necks stretched too, as a warning to others.' The young prostitute's face went white. Not only had she been attacked and molested, now she was sentenced to death. Turpin heard her scream, "'By God, we're all dead!' Realising that he had scared them, the soldier started laughing and stood within a foot of Turpin, "'who held both pistols at his face. "'Hand me the pistols, you wretch, "'or I'll finish you off where you stand.' "'Grand boast with a man armed only "'with a small knife and a wilting penis. "'Here is the gentleman thief,' continued the soldier, "'the polite, well-spoken rogue "'who captured the country's heart. "'You're no gent, not more than a thief.' "'Turpin didn't answer.' and silence fell like a net. The only noise that could be heard was the wind howling through the barn and the whimpering of the teenager as she was consoled by the innkeeper's wife. It was a battle of wills. The sergeant was deciding whether to attack the highwayman, his mind whizzing through the possible outcomes, while Turpin's brain, too, was swimming as the silence seemed an eternity. Finally, Turpin jerked his knee into the sergeant's groin with such force it actually lifted him off the ground. He fell to the floor moaning, and Turpin said, ''You bastard! Here am I listening to your threats, yet you're the offender this night, not I!'' The sergeant cursed Turpin reiterating that he was charged with thievery but not murder. His life could depend on what happened that very night. Turpin was still undecided about the whole idea. "'If I let you live, will you leave these people alone?' "'The sergeant was holding his vitals and breathing heavily as he nodded. "'Turpin knew the man wasn't trustworthy. "'As trustworthy as a scorpion,' he thought. "'He looked at the three people, scared witless, "'their lives hanging in the balance. "'He walked towards the sergeant "'and placed both barrels against the man's lips and said, "'Swear it on my pistols!' "'for if you break your word, I will surely kill you.' "'The sergeant smiled, saying, "'Well, you'll kiss my arse first.' "'Turban hands were shaking "'as he clicked back the hammers of the pistol. "'The sergeant was at his most menacing "'when he said, "'You'll hang my lad, "'and I'll say that this nest of rogues "'is burned to the ground with everybody still in it. "'You're all going to hell. "'After you.' "'answered Turpin, letting fly with both pistols, "'blasting a hole in the sergeant's face "'so wide you could put your arm in it. "'His body flew backwards, "'as if he'd been fired from a cannon "'and hit the barn wall with a sickening crunch. "'The hole from the front through to the back. "'It was obvious he was dead.' "'Shakily, Turpin turned to the others. "'I'd done him and no mistake.' "'Now when the word gets out, I'm a dead man too.' "'I saw nothing, sir,' the prostitute said. "'Nor I,' said the innkeeper. Turpin was surprised at this. "'But his body will be found.' The innkeeper began wiping up the blood with straw that he dumped in a barrow. "'Get yourself down the road, son. "'We'll clean up here and we'll take the body a few miles away. "'You were never here this night.' "'You're in our book as Thomas Wastrell. "'That you'll always be. "'We'll say we saw you chase off the soldiers, but nothing more.' "'I,' said the girl, "'if we all say the same, we'll be safe.' Turpin mounted his horse and rode off into the night. The innkeeper was true to his word and Turpin returned three times to the Spaniard's inn and at one time very nearly married the young prostitute. It said that the innkeeper was so grateful to Turpin that he redesigned the inn so that the highwayman could leave from one of the upstairs windows and drop directly on Blackbess's back should anyone track him there. The boastful sergeant was right about one thing. He said that Turpin would be executed and he was on the 7th of April, 1739. But never in any history did anybody ever hear of the man Dick Turpin killed. Apart from the occasional footsteps, the Spaniard's Inn doesn't seem to be too haunted, but it's still worth a visit. They've got a variety of items that belong to Turpin, including his pistols and keys, and maybe, if you ask nicely, you can have your supper using the actual cutlery used by the rogue himself. Several people have claimed to have heard ghostly hooves galloping across nearby Hampstead Heath. Whether this is Black Bess or someone going to the newspapers trying to flog a dead horse, I don't know. My researcher visited the Spaniards Inn and said that he felt a presence in the bar as if someone was just watching him. He mentioned this to the bar staff and they said that they'd all experienced the same thing and a few have seen a grey figure in high riding boots and a tricone hat parade through the bar just as twilight hits, especially around the night of Halloween. We hope you have enjoyed a very different Grizzly with a couple of ceremonies that I hope you find interesting. And doable. We got an awful lot more. Alan Robston's Grizzly Tales will continue next week. Look forward to your company. Spread the word.